Father's Day. Here we go. I want to I wanna title this sermon, Living in Light of Death. My longer title was, How Now Shall We Live in Light of Our Impending Death? So I want to talk to you today about what it means to live a life of consequence in our world. And perhaps, and I, and I really do believe it, and I am happy to be here, and I, but I believe that it may in fact be in the providence of God that we talk about this theme of death, which is kind of circling throughout the book of Ecclesiastes, even on a day like this on Father's Day, because I believe that the late Mark Twain was right when he said, most men die at 27, we just don't bury them until 72. And so we are going to, I know. <laughs> We are going <laughs> to, I found that a while ago. I was like, I'm using that. Uh, you're welcome, dad. Uh, let's look at the text here today. And we do this today. We stand with me this morning. We're going to open God's word and, and, and invite ourselves to be, um, to be led by him. We're in Ecclesiastes chapter nine. I'm going to read verses one to 12. But all this I laid to heart, examining it all, how the righteous and the wise and their deeds are in the hand of God. Whether it is love or hate, man does not know. Both are before him. It is the same for all, since the same event happens to the righteous and the wicked, to the good and the evil, to the clean and the unclean, to him who sacrifices and him who does not sacrifice. As the good one is, so is the sinner and he who swears is as he who shuns an oath. This is an evil in all that is done under the sun, that the same event happens to all. Also, the hearts of the children of man are full of evil, and madness is in their hearts while they live. And after that, they go to the dead. But he who is joined with all the living has hope. For a living dog is better than a dead lion. For the living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing, and they have no more reward, for the memory of them is forgotten. Their love and their hate and their envy have already perished, and forever they have no more share in all that is done under the sun. So go eat your bread with joy and drink your wine with a merry heart, for God has already approved what you do. Let your garments be always white, let not oil be lacking on your head. Enjoy life with the wife whom you love all the days of your vain life that he has given you under the sun because that is your portion in life and in your toil at which you toil under the sun. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might for there is no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol to which you are going. Again, I saw that under the sun, the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, nor bread to the wise, nor riches to the intelligent, nor favor to those with knowledge, but time and chance happen to them all. For man does not know his time, like fish that are taken in an evil net, and like birds that are caught in a snare, so the children of man are snared in an evil time when it suddenly falls on them. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. How you doing? You good? Okay. That's how I do it. You start, you keep it light when you start, and then it's like, here we go. Okay. I can't remember who first said it, but one of my college professors once said to 
me and my group of future pastors, he said that one of our primary responsibilities of a pastor is to help our congregation die well. And we all thought at age 19 that that was a metaphor, (laughs) but he meant it literally, spiritually, physically, all of that. This morning, we're invited to wrestle with the preacher in Ecclesiastes over this theme of death. And we're going to do that. But I would just hang with me. I promise there will be no sense of hopelessness when you leave the room today, okay? So hang with me. But we are going to talk about death today. And we're going to talk about three things related to that. The reality, the absurdity, and then the antidote to death. The reality of death, the absurdity of death, and the antidote. And isn't that just where the last verse that I read, where it kind of, it kind of takes us to that sense of the reality of death. To paraphrase verse 12, it says something to the effect of, we don't know our time. Like a fish taken in a net or by a hook, or like a bird in a snare, our moment of death can fall at any moment. That is the reality of death. Two very important men died on the same day 60 years ago. In fact, they died within an hour of each other, but on different sides of the world. These men led very different lives, but they shared the same fate and on the same day. Both men were known to their best friends as Jack. One of them has become one of the most read authors of the last 100 years. The other, for about two years, was arguably the most powerful man alive. On November 22, 1963, President John F. Kennedy and author Clive Staples Lewis, or as we know him, C.S. Lewis, died within an hour of each other. And JFK's death was so shocking, it was so magnanimous that it dwarfed the headlines in the news cycle completely for days and months on end. And not just nationally, but globally, And this to such a degree that most people didn't know that on the same day and at around the same time, one of the world's greatest authors had died as well. And those two shocking deaths on the same day, they bring up um, and they continue to bring up significant questions about mortality and death. Questions like, if the president can be murdered, then who is actually safe? Well, for Christians, we, we wonder if, if one of the most prolific writers and apologists in the Christian faith can die suddenly, well, then the extent of our time on earth cannot be related to how useful we are in God's kingdom or even how faithful we've been. The same event on the same day. That's the reality of the suddenness and the unexpected nature of death. But there's even more than that, because it brings up questions of legacy. Their, their deaths bring up questions about how our life will actually be remembered. Lewis believed and often said that after he died, no one would read his books, and he would be quickly forgotten. But he wasn't. He was, in fact, wrong. And JFK is maybe most, mem- most remembered for this quote. A man may die, nations may rise and fall, but an idea lives on. But JFK 
is remembered primarily for his death. And for conspiracies theories around his death, some of you are Googling them right now. Stop it. <laughs> Stay with me. And his sins. And Marilyn Monroe singing happy birthday to him. Don't Google that either, okay? Just stay, stay with me. He was remembered for those things rather than his ideas. And I say that in no way to sort of demonize him or to assume that he had no accomplishments at all. I'm just referring to a simple Google search. If you type his name in, what comes up first? Death, assassination, conspiracy, and all of that. But Lewis was remembered for his life. His death went unnoticed and it was, it was hardly worthy of the tabloids, but his life, his transformation and his work, really his ideas live on even to this day. Two men died on the same day, one remembered for his death and the other for his life. And this is really, this is what the preacher of Ecclesiastes is wrestling with. Death and mortality. These, this is the theme that sort of swirls around throughout the entirety of his writing. It's the theme that he uses to talk about all these other ideas about time and about work and about family and about religion. It's really, what he's really wrestling with is his own mortality. And to read his writing is to wrestle with him. And to wrestle with him knowing that what he does is he doesn't lead us to sort of perfect answers to all of life's perplexities. The preacher is not leading us to answers so much as he is leading us to God himself who exists in perfection and mystery before us. That's where he's taking us, not to the answer but to the one who knows all things. And he's dealing with the reality of death. He's, he's kind of, he's kicking it over in his mind, wondering what does it all mean? He's dealing with the reality of it. But the more he deals with the reality of it, he starts to think about the absurdity of it. I wanna to talk to you about the absurdity of death. And that really is what brings us into, into this text. And we'll go through verse by verse. But death is the most absurd thing of all. And that's why you and I are not comfortable with it. That's, we, we're not comfortable with death. We're not comfortable with conversations about death because something deep inside of us tells us that this is not the way it's supposed to be. And when you think that, you're right. It's not the way it's supposed to be. Death is absent from the creation story. Death is, it's only, it only becomes present in the creation story when human beings are led to rebel against God himself. Death is absurd. Sin is absurd. And that's what he's really struggling with, this absurdity of, of all of it. Let's look here at the text. Verse one, it says, but all this I laid to heart, examining it all how the righteous and the wise and their deeds are in the hand of God. And then he says this, whether it is love or hate, man does not know. Both are before him. That's confusing, isn't it? 
It's a confusing verse. It's very challenging actually to translate the Hebrew in the verse, and it's even more challenging to sort of interpret what it's actually saying in this text, but at a basic level, the preacher is telling us that you cannot necessarily tell whether a person is in or out of favor with God by the circumstances of their life. And I understand that that's a very disturbing thing to say in here. But isn't it true that if we only look to the surface, we won't necessarily get a sense for God's love for us? Here's, here's, here's what I mean, and I mean this kind of in, in earthly terms. I mean, think, about, think about a character in the New Testament that many of us Christians have learned a lot about. It's the Apostle Paul. Before the Apostle Paul is, um, is saved by Jesus, his life is actually going quite well, isn't it? He talks about this a lot in his letters. He talks about his success. He talks about his accomplishments. He talks about his intelligence and ingenuity and how he was sort of rising in the ranks as a, as a philosopher in, in his own time. He's doing quite well. And then he encounters Jesus and it actually seems to get worse for him, depending on how you look at it. Am I right? After, it's after he encounters Jesus that he experienced poverty, beatings, imprisonment, slander, and snake bites. Look it up, all of it. That comes after he commits his way to Jesus. And I think this is what the preacher is getting at. He's going to get to death, but what, what, he's, what he's inviting us into is the mystery that if we just look on the outside of a person's life, we don't exactly know what that says about how God is treating them. He goes on to talk even more about this. In verse 2, he says, It is the same for all, since the same event happens to the righteous and the wicked. He's talking about death here to the good and the evil, to the clean and the unclean, to him who sacrifices and him who does not sacrifice. As the good one is, so is the sinner, and he who swears is as he who shuns an oath. And then he says this, this is an evil in all that is done under the sun, that the same event, the very same event happens to all. The righteous and the unrighteous the clean and the unclean, those who make sacrifices and worship to God, the good and the sinner, those who make an oath to submit their lives to God and those who never acknowledge God, all of them get the same thing. And he's saying to us, this is absurd. This is an evil, he says. It's maddening to him. But what I need you to do is I need you to notice something. When, whenever you're reading Ecclesiastes, look for the phrase under the sun. He says, this is a great evil under the sun. And what, what does he mean by that? Well, what he's doing is he's acknowledging, even as he thinks about circumstances of the world and, and what it all means, and in particular, death that comes to every person, he's understanding and comprehending his own limitations. It's maddening to him. It's maddening to you and I. But what he's doing in this text is he's recognizing that God is all wise and all powerful, omnipresent. God is able to see all things at all times, but the preacher and you and I do not and cannot. Your heavenly father knows. Happy Father's Day. But we don't. And doesn't that frustrate you to no end? 
Death is not the way things are supposed to be. He knows it and you and I know it, but he digs even deeper into the cause of death. In verse three, the second half of verse three, he says, also the hearts of the children of man are full of evil and madness is in their hearts while they live and after that, they go to the dead. Again, I think that Mark Twain was right. Many, many live dead lives long before they are buried. The preacher isn't just talking about mortality, he's talking about depravity. And he's making the key connection that the scriptures do, all throughout the scriptures, he's making the key connection that sin is connected to death and evil to death. They go hand in hand. We spent years in Romans and what did we glean from that? The wages of sin is what? Death. And he's looking out into the world and our world and what he sees what he sees seems to be absurd. Death itself is absurd, but also the sin that leads to death is even more absurd. And it's challenging to him that the righteous don't always get longer life and it sometimes even seems that they aren't rewarded for their faithfulness. While the wicked often seem to be thriving and live long lives. Have you ever thought how is it possible? How is it possible that Joseph Stalin gets 74 years and Jesus of Nazareth 33? It's maddening, all of this, it's maddening under the sun. And, and that's why I love this book, don't you? I mean, honestly, this book is an invitation to consider life with no quick answers, no easy, no pat answers. Everything that's brought up is wrestled with. But unlike the philosophers of our day, the preacher does not go all the way into despair and nihilism as he plums the depths, even the reality and the absurdity of death. Even in the midst of that, he announces there, there is hope for us and there is hope for you. You might think that he might end sort of this, this um, diatribe, if you will, by saying, and that's why there's no point to life. But he goes a totally different direction. It's right there in verse four. I wanna invite you to look at this. He says this, he who is joined with all the living has hope. For a living dog is better than a dead lion. For the living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing and they have no more reward. For the memory of them is forgotten. Their love and their hate and their envy have already perished and forever they have no more share in all that is done under the sun. What he's telling us in his own way is that there's hope. There's hope for us. He's wrestling with the reality and absurdity of death, but he's telling us, I need you to know that there's still hope. And then he illustrates that by comparing two animals. Did you notice that? One that represents power and prosperity and wealth, the lion, and the other one that um, represents disdain and disapproval and poverty, the dog. Now this comparison doesn't resonate with many of you because you basically worship your dog. You know what I mean? I have a friend named Martha who was a part of our church for a long time before she moved and Martha's from Kenya. And one time we were talking about uh, sort of the differences between her African culture and, and living here in the States. And she goes, the main thing is the dogs. 
She's like, what, what is wrong with you people? Like dogs in your family photos. This is like dogs in Kenya. It's like the scum of the earth. They're like, why are they even there? Here we're like, this is my child. And so that I, I recognize that metaphor is lost on us in some ways, but, but, but track with me here. What he's telling us is it's better to be alive than dead. Because while we are alive, and this is where I think he's going, because while we are alive, God can save us and transform us and heal us and renew us. And he can fill your life with purpose. He can help you get outside of yourself and into his life while we're still living. He can do that. If you are still breathing, he's still working on you. And that's what he's telling us. And some of you showed up today and you're not sure why you showed up today, but I think you just needed to hear that today. If you're still breathing, he's still working on you. And you need to know that. Fatalism is perhaps the only option for the godless, but not you, because God is good and you're still breathing. So enough about the reality of death and the absurdity of death. We're not meant to sort of live in that for, for too long. Let's turn the corner here. I want to talk to you about the antidote to death. The antidote, this series is called The Antidote to, to Emptiness. But there is an antidote to death. And in particular, the fear and the hopelessness of death. I didn't, I didn't preach, I thought about shifting, you know, this sermon to like something more peppy, but, but we're, we're sticking with it. I didn't, I didn't, I haven't taken you this far to, to sort of just make you sad and leave you in that. I want to offer you something better. I want to talk about the antidote. And in doing that, I want to give you two things today. Good news and a good practice for you. The good news is this. We'll take a pause from Ecclesiastes for just a minute. But the good news is this. The last word on death is not found in the philosophical journey of the preacher in Ecclesiastes. You won't find it there. The last word on death is found in the greatest preacher of all who came to announce the good news that God is reconciling the world to himself through his birth, his life, his teachings, his death, his resurrection, and his rule and reign. Evil and death will not get the last word because his kingdom has come and his kingdom is coming. And one day the whole world will see his glory and we are told that, the la that death will be the last enemy to be destroyed. So the last word on death is not found here in this Hebrew poetry but the last word is found in the one that it was pointing to, Christ our Lord. The preacher here, he doesn't know the whole story. And so he kind of wonders aloud if when, if when saints or when people who follow God, when they die, do they just go to what the ancients called Sheol, the place of the dead? He wonders, is that, is that just what happens to them and to everyone? But we are told in Matthew 27, literally look this up and read this, I'm not making this up, that the death, of resurrection, the death and resurrection of Jesus was so powerful that the dead saints of old literally came up out of their graves and walked around. The last word of death is not here. 
Solomon knew about life under the sun, but he didn't know who we call the rising sun. The one who would come from heaven and who would come to destroy sin and the devil and death itself. And isn't that the good news? And isn't that what we need? Some of you are here today, and I want you to hear me say this. Some of you are here today because it's time to die. It's time to die to self. It's time to die to sin. It's time to die to self-centeredness. It's time to die to hopelessness and to be raised to new life by the giver of life, Jesus Christ our Lord. Francis of Assisi said this, in baptism, we die the only death that matters. You wanna be free from the fear of death, the hopelessness, the meaninglessness of it all, then surrender to Jesus. Paul, that, that great man whose life got turned upside down by Jesus, for better or worse, <laughs> said these words in Colossians chapter three, if you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. Listen, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then, 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 that day, you also will appear with him in glory. And this is our hope. This is the good news that is the antidote to death. And this is why Paul would later write, death, oh death, where is your sting? But the question that we're getting at from my longer title to the sermon is this, how now shall we live in light of our impending but momentary death? How should, how should we live in light of that? And, and the preacher in Ecclesiastes has something to tell us about that. You need to see this. This is, this, is, uh, this is important. Back in Ecclesiastes 9, I want you to look at verse 7. What the preacher commends to us, the reader, is this. The antidote is joy. Just look at what he says. He says, go. This is not a suggestion. He's like, go. Literally, go. Eat your bread with joy. And drink your wine with a merry heart. For God has already approved what you do. Let your garments be always white. Let not oil be lacking on your head. Enjoy life with the wife whom you love all the days of your vain life that he has given you under the sun because that is your portion in life. And in your toil at which you toil under the sun. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might. For there is no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol, which is where you're going. Again, he has a limited understanding, but here's what he is telling us. What you really want and what you really need is joy. Isn't that what you want? Isn't that the antidote to death is, is joy? What was it that enabled Jesus to go to the cross? The text tells us it was for the joy set before him that he endured the cross. You want joy. I want joy. How do we get it? Here's how you get it. Here's a good practice for you. Write this down. 
contentment. It is in being content. Contentment is the pathway, it's the practice that allows us to walk in the joy of the Lord. You want joy? Start with that. And I realize that in the upper class suburbs, contentment is a four letter word, but I'm sticking with it because that's what we need. I know that even when I, when I use the word contentment, you're like, ooh, right? You're like, I'm type A, I'm not content with anything. I, I know you, I know where you're at. But listen, but did you notice the way the text reads when he, when he, when he makes this command? He says, your bread, your wine, your garments and clothing, your wife, your spouse, your work, this is all your portion. Listen to me, Jesus has dealt with and will deal with death, but if you wanna walk in joy in this life, you are gonna have to learn to be content. That's where he's taking us. Three areas that he commends us to be content in. These are three categories that he implores us to practice contentment. The first category is what I'll call provisions and pleasures. What is he talking? He's talking about things we need, but he's also just talking about gifts that we have. Food. You need food. It's a provision. Wine. You actually don't need wine. It's a pleasure, though. Clothing is what we need, but how much do we need? And how nice does it have to be? What he's telling us is that this incessant need for more provisions and more pleasures is actually death. And he implores us to enjoy the simple pleasures of life that God has provided with you. And the question today is, are you enjoying what God has actually given you? Not what you wish he would. The second appeal to be content in is the relationships God has given you. He appeals to the gift of marriage in particular. Husbands, dads, this is your wife. Cherish her. Love her as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. What does it look like in your life to be thankful, not for the relationships you wish you had, but the ones that you actually have? Not the community you would like to curate for yourself, but this one. And the third category that he implores us to be content in is our work. And how many hours are spent in discontent about our work? Whatever that is, whatever work is, however you define work, maybe it's a nine to five, maybe it's schoolwork or homework, maybe it's housework, maybe it's parenting. How much discontent sort of rises up within us as we engage in that? But God is calling us to be content with the work that he has brought to us and to do it for his glory. So I wanna to commend to you today contentment and you're probably wondering, yeah, but like what does contentment look like? And to understand that, like moderns, we don't get it. So I'm gonna go back 500 or so years to a 17th century Puritan named Jeremiah Burroughs, who none of you have heard of, and I hadn't either until this week. 
Jeremiah Burroughs wrote um, a wonderful little book on contentment. And this is how he defined contentment. This is so good, I'm going to read this slow to you. Christian contentment is that sweet, inward, quiet, gracious frame of spirit which freely submits to and delights in God's wise and fatherly disposal in every condition. That's good, right? That's not original. That's, that's, I, you needed to hear that. That's why I brought it to you. That's what it is, that sweet and inward, quiet frame of spirit, which just, it submits to, and not just submits to in drudgery, but delights in the fact that God is wise and he is disposed towards us in grace in every single condition. Now, Jeremiah Burroughs, he, he, he wrote this book primarily as a reflection on one of the great passages on contentment that is often um, misapplied and misquoted. It comes from Philippians chapter four. I'm actually gonna invite you to turn there because you're gonna wanna read this. In Philippians chapter four, verses 11, Paul says this, from a prison cell, just context, from a prison cell. It says, not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation, in whatever situation, I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstances, listen to this, I have learned the secret Paul is telling you the secret. This is the secret of life. The secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. And then these words, misapplied often. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Isn't that interesting? I'm a big sports guy, and like all my favorite athletes have tattooed that verse to their body, right? I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. What is the, content, what is the context of that verse? It is not accomplishments. It's contentment. Paul is saying, I've actually learned the secret, the antidote, even the antidote. I mean, so Paul is writing these words, awaiting his fate, and he says, I've learned to be content so I can endure all things. I can walk through all things. I can accept whatever comes my way because Christ is in me and my life is hidden with Christ in God. Contentment. How do we get it? One last thing. You with me? One more thing. How do we get it? Well, Jeremiah Burroughs knows, so look, listen to this. The truth is, he says, the truth is I know of nothing more effective for quieting a Christian soul and getting contentment than this. Listen to this. Set your heart to work in the duties, in the immediate circumstances that you are now in. Taking heed of your thoughts about other conditions as a mere temptation. The antidote to death is being content. But how do we learn contentment? By learning to be present to our actual life, to, to show up to the real moments that we're in, not wondering about the future or the past, but to be truly present 
in the moment. Dads, let me talk to you for just a second before I let you go. Future dads, let me talk to you for a second before you go. Not as a sage, but a a brother along the way. I'm learning to be present to the actual moments of my life. My daughter recently discovered softball and she's kind of a good pitcher. And I was kind of a good pitcher. And her mom was actually a phenomenal pitcher. So we're working it out at our house. My daughter's learning to pitch. And um, multiple times a day, she walks up to me and hands me the glove. And she says, go. And then she says one word. She says, squat, which is a weird word. But that's, she's very funny. She's very funny. Because it's like, I'm like a middle-aged runner, so I'm trying to save the knees, but she's like, squat. And so, you know, so I can get into the catcher's position maybe for a few more years, okay? But how often, how often am I, am I sort of tempted to like, oh, I forgot to text, you know? It's like in between pitches, and I'm texting D, who works with me here, or Jacob. I'm like, did you forget, you know? And, and, and she'll just yell at me again, squat, dad. You know, and it's, and it's become this word, this trigger word to get present to this actual moment that you're in, which isn't that one of the hardest things for us to do. My younger son, I'll talk about all my kids. My younger son loves soccer. He, we, he would prefer that I stand in front of this tiny goal in our backyard and he'd stand no more than seven feet away from me and kick the ball at me as hard as he possibly can. And I'd rather be many other places than present in that moment. My oldest son growing is a hooper. You know, he's, it's like, what is my contribution? Rebounding, that's it. That's all I do is just rebound. But when we become present to those moments for for what they are and who they're with, I I think that what happens, I think is the Lord teaches us contentment. And when we receive not our ideal life, but our actual life is a gift. What we get is joy. And isn't that what you need? Amen. Father, we thank you. We thank you for this life. We thank you for these people. We thank you for the circumstances we find ourselves in. The gift of Toil, the gift of your provision, the gift of pleasure, relationships, your many blessings. We recognize today that you have dealt with death and you will deal ultimately with it. And so fill us with hope and peace in that, that we might walk in your ways. Again, Lord, I pray for those here who today have yet to, have yet to die to self. I pray you would lead them, save them, Transform them. All of us, Lord, though, I pray, Lord, help us to be present 
present to you, present to each other, the ones around us, Lord. We prepare our hearts for your table today, your great gift, Lord. We're satisfied in Christ, his death and resurrection. What a gift it is, Lord. We praise you, we worship you, we honor you. Thank you for our salvation. Teach us to walk in it, we pray. And all God's people said, and everybody said, amen. amen.